welcome to the in focus podcast i am g anantakrishnan senior associate editor of the hindu and your host for today i will be speaking with wildlife biologist k ulas karant who is the director of the center for wildlife studies bengaluru dr karant trained as an engineer but he was so fascinated by wildlife that he decided to become a wildlife biologist and after taking a phd dedicated his career to studying wild tigers and their conservation using science dr karant's work has focused on the ecology of tigers and how to count them scientifically he has published more than 75 peer reviewed papers in prestigious journals and written many books one of them entitled the science of saving tigers today i will be asking dr ulas karant about the report on the status of tigers released recently by the government of india by which estimate india has 2967 tigers and how the world can ensure a future for tigers and for other species so this uh, latest uh, status of tigers co-predators and prey has come mm. out and uh, you know they have a number there of course an estimate yeah. of you know some confidence interval estimate of maybe 2967 tigers hmm. so i wanted to ask you uh, straight off you know uh, I, i don't know whether you had the opportunity to really spend time with the report it, it seems to be quite large so uh, what do you think of the number itself you know as a count no i, I see this is not a new report uh, about a year a little over a year ago a summary of this was re- uh, released and now they have just uh, printed it on glossy paper and added a lot of photos of tigers so <laughs> the content is the same and this is an approach that we have criticized by and other statisticians and many others have criticized from 2006 when they introduced this approach of estimating tiger numbers over large areas using what a method called index calibration using different approaches so this method is completely invalid uh so i don't think the results are accurate this time or were they accurate the previous time or uh, before that so i don't worry too much about these numbers so what would be a uh, 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 you know sort of useful method to uh, assess the health of uh, you know tigers in uh, you know the subcontinent particularly in india yeah see there are two all this has been actually repeatedly critiqued alternative offered in peer reviewed publications but they go on sticking on to this methodology which has never received proper peer review and the data are completely hidden they are not shared with any scientist all the way from the 2006 survey when they introduced this methodology the raw data are completely hidden from any scientific scrutiny so there are very many better ways of approaching the problem uh, the way they do it Uh, there are the first problem is that they try to go for these all india regional large landscape numbers the way they try to connect the camera trap surveys in smaller areas to track surveys across larger landscape is fundamentally statistically flawed it's a futile exercise but my main point is there's no point in going for these very large scale numbers which are, which have such variances and such weak links because the information provided by tracks is very very poor so 
I think we should not worry too much about them. But if they want to do it, there are better methods than what they're using. But to me, the key issue is uh, 75 to 80 percent of the tigers, perhaps even more, are concentrated in a very small fraction of the area. We have three lakh square kilometers of tiger habitat that is roughly surveyed, of which only 30 or 40 thousand square kilometers is where the Somewhat viable breeding populations are there, so that is where 70 to 80 percent, perhaps, or even higher proportion of tigers are there. Those need they need to be monitored rigorously. The problem is they are not, neither doing that well nor this large scale extrapolation well. There are fundamental flaws in the way they are estimating these numbers because these camera trap surveys uh, have to. Uh, have to be done under a rigorous a protocol called capture recapture which means you take repeated snapshots of the population samples from the population so they are violating a huge number of assumptions involved in that so the net result is they are getting more and more tigers but the tigers that are going are not deducted so you get these ever increasing numbers longer you keep the cameras more tigers you will get so this is one one of the many flaws so i think what is required is a complete revamp not trying to twiddle with the system that they have introduced and they are persisting in spite of all scientific predictions yeah actually i i saw that after the 2010 data came out you had said mm-hmm. that uh, you know 70% of the tigers are found in 42 source populations and uh, this uh, this has been the case despite a range contraction of 22% that's what you had said at the time yeah yeah absolutely at one of the surveys i think it was 2010 Uh, they said the habitat has shrunk and the uh, densities have gone up by 45%, which yeah. is ridiculous. And some of the so what I am saying is this: this whole business of turning it into a massive bureaucratic monopoly, where there is a series of conflict of interest. The uh, NPCA, the government officials in charge of parks, and WII all have a vested interest in portraying everything is fine. So this leads. to not an independent audit like the cat does or any auditing mechanism does it leads to a mutually reinforcing system of claims backed by very little else and the sad thing is with all this uh, what is there to pat yourself on the back about there were about 2000 tigers roughly in 1970 now uh, in uh, 50 years later there are about 3000 tigers so what's the big deal Still, 70% of the tiger habitat or more, where we can have tigers, is virtually unoccupied. So I see no no need to celebrate kind of hoodwink the public with all these glossy magazines. The problem is nobody goes deep into the core of the report. There are no details of anything any use which can allow a scientific examination of the report. There are just these numbers. There are some photos of tigers and lots of nice scenery and wildlife pictures. This is not science. Yeah, in fact, I would like to go back to that uh, issue of science because uh, I remember that you had written in 2004, I think, uh, there was a paper in which you had said that uh, the, you had studied panna and said that if you can manage uh, that uh, Central Indian uh, dry uh, forest habitat carefully, then you can support 9,000 wild tigers. So uh, I think that was uh, that was I think Raghu's estimate of some kind. See, but I am. My estimate is uh, there is about three lakh square kilometers of habitat, potential tiger habitat. 
even if you maintain an average density of 5 tigers per 100 square kilometers whereas some of these areas can have 15 which is very high but even if you have 5 you are talking about 15000 tigers even if you are talking about 3 or 4 tigers per 100 square kilometers you are talking about 10000 tigers in india yes we are after 50 years we have kind of added uh, a thousand tigers to the whole population and we are going around celebrating like there is no tomorrow. This this is the problem. So uh, this this issue of source populations, you know, for the average person uh, yeah. to try and understand yeah. that, would you, uh, yeah. would you would you explain uh, the significance of source populations and where yes. they are at in, I mean, India today? Yeah. See, basically, uh, tigers have high reproductive rates and high mortality rates. So, if the reproduction is not kept up, they very quickly disappear because their mortality rates are high. They get killed by people, they have, um, you know, intraspecific aggression, they starve to death if there is no prey, they get killed in hunting accidents. So, mortality is high, so the key is to keep the reproduction high. So, those populations are areas in which the reproduction is higher than mortality, so there is a slight surplus being produced. These are called source populations. And this was in an analysis we, analysis we published in 2010, uh, global analysis, which showed that uh, nearly 60-70% of the world's tigers are found only in 6-7% uh, of the area uh, of the habitat. So these are source populations and protecting them is key. For example, Nagarhole or Bandipur or Kana, these are obviously source populations. But we have to have enough of them and each one has to be large enough. So we have this surplus that has the potential to recolonize the other areas gradually. So the other areas outside the source are essentially sink because that is where the reproduction is far lower than the losses. So unless there is um, inflow from these sources, the, these things are just absorbing tigers. That's what, why they are called things. You had uh, spent, uh, you know, quality uh, effort in uh, Nagarhole, which I had the occasion to see. Uh, yes. So could you talk about uh, the success of uh, Nagarhole, how that came about? And, uh, you know, I, I presume that the numbers are very healthy there, even now. There were, uh, there were many sites. Uh, Nagarhole is one of them where I was lucky to, uh, in fact, the Karnataka Western Ghats is where I have been able to put proper monitoring systems and nearly 30 years we applied the best methods and we have the data. Uh, but this model of recovery in Nagarhole and other places has very simple elements. Number one is you need law enforcement so people hunting the prey are forbidden. They are stopped because without a prey base, However beautiful the forest looks from the aerial maps or satellite images, tigers cannot make it there. This is the global problem for tigers is we have enough forest but don't have prey. So that's the first step. So second step is occasionally when there are concentrations of tigers, very determined poachers may try to come and kill them like it happened in Panna and Tarista. So you need some enforcement. But the enforcement is same. Whether it's prey or tigers, it's patrolling two guards going around. There is no rocket science to it. That is essential. Second thing is, if there are livestock raising, agriculture, and human activities inside, uh, extraction of non-timber forest products, logging, this interspersion 
does not work with tigers, breeding tiger population. On the edges, you may be able to deal with the conflict. In, in, inside, what happens is when tigers kill people, uh, people or livestock, they get poisoned. So this is a perennial conflict. And in the name of legitimate activities, a lot of poachers can go and set snares and poison water holes and do what they want. So the key is actually not everywhere, but in these key source populations, uh, we incentivize people to move out. Uh, this was difficult in earlier years because people didn't have opportunities outside. But it's actually become quite easy now because people themselves are quite willing to go in search of education, employment. A lot of them don't find it, uh, particularly with increasing numbers and holdings getting smaller. People want to move out. So that is where the emphasis has to be. And these are few simple uh, things that need to be done, then you need to put a good audit mechanism, a monitoring system in place, you know whether things are working or not. So th that's all that is involved in bringing back tigers. So has it actually been replicated elsewhere, the, what you have done in Nagarhole? No, if you are talking about the monitoring part, no, because it took a lot of effort. We put a sort of serious science into it right from 19... Uh, 80s when we began estimating prey, for example, how many tigers can be there in an area, is straight away a rule of the thumb calculation is 500 prey for one tiger. That gives you an estimate. So determining prey density using proper methodology is important and we established the methodology, we developed the data. Not in a single part they are doing it right after all these years. It's, it's nothing. It's it's a simple method called uh, distance sampling or line transit sampling. So the second thing, if you get past that, if you have cameras, if you have other things, you can actually go beyond saying there can be 100 tigers in this place based on prey. You can go and actually see how many there are. And that is where rigorous camera trapping is important. And the key thing is you've got to do it every year. Not once in four years, because tigers have mortality rates of 20% per year. In four years, all the original tigers are virtually gone. So there is no continuity in the data, no estimate of survival rate, no estimate of losses, gains. Nothing is possible the way they are doing these things. Simply putting cameras and calling it the gold standard. Yeah, so we essentially means that uh, these various uh, figures that have come out since 2006, they are, uh, for one thing, they are not comparable. Uh, and uh, they, are, they are not, uh, you know, wholly accurate. accurate. Yeah, and the key is, uh, Anand, in 2017, we brought out a monograph. It took two years of effort. We brought everybody, some of the best tiger biologists, the best biostatisticians to Bangalore, Indian Statistical Institute. We sat there, we discussed, we it came up, and Mr. Javadekar even sent a message of uh, encouragement when we had that. In 2017, we published a monograph with 31 authors elaborating each one of these methods in great detail, and there is no interest in absorbing any of it. This is like we were in the era of cell phones, we are still using some old uh, telephone wires and uh, manual calls. There is no interest in using the best statistics, simply buying equipment everybody wants to buy, but how it is used is not, not regulated by any statistics or science. So uh, how how do you think this should actually go in the future? I mean, if uh, we assume that we want to have a really a robust estimate, we don't have a good baseline from what you have said so far. The baseline is faulty. But uh, how do we sort of go forward at a national level to have... Uh, I think there are two things. 
वन इज द क्वेश्चन ऑफ मॉनिटरिंग वन इज द क्वेश्चन ऑफ ओवरऑल टाइगर कंजर्वेशन देर आर टू डिफरेंट इश्यूज तो इफ यू आर टॉकिंग अबाउट मॉनिटरिंग इट इज वेरी वेरी क्लियर दैट द मैनेजमेंट एंड मॉनिटरिंग हैव टू बी इंडिपेंडेंट ऑफ इच अदर द सेम ब्यूरोक्रेसी मैनेजिंग द टाइगर एंड द सेम ब्यूरोक्रेसी मेजरिंग द रिजल्ट सिंपली डजेंट वर्क तो दैट complete independence has to be established by entrusting the monitoring to reputed scientific institutions there are enough institutions and enough qualified people now if they are all pooled together uh, can mount a uh, independent monitoring of once a year monitoring system across india at the at least at the source population level perhaps even wider level that that is really the key the present system of monitoring has to be dismantled if you look at tiger conservation as a whole what i am seeing is a strange contradiction between the current government's policies in other arenas and in the conservation arena in other arenas they have tried to i'm not saying they have succeeded but at least they have tried to free up the economy from bureaucratic tactics they have tried to free up even agricultural uh, sector from some of these old top down uh, red tape ridden systems but when it comes to conservation it's the reverse we are having more and more bureaucracy more and more government monopoly even sectors like tourism in which the government has no expertise is completely dominated by government uh, research is dominated by government conservation education has to be dominated by government i don't mean uh, there is no need for this we need bureaucracy certainly for law enforcement because a uh, uh, private sector cannot be the security agency for nature that part has to be with the forest department or some other force uh, to enforce the law beyond that we should use the creative energy of india instead of Building massive bureaucracies. You go to some of these states; the number of senior officers sitting there managing wildlife is mind-boggling. This is all not needed, and it will save a lot of money if they can just dismantle this bureaucracy. So, actually, if you look at uh, the kind of segmentation that they have given in the report uh, in terms of the landscapes, you know, uh, they have talked about the Shivalik, Gangetic, uh, Central Indian, yeah. Western Ghats, and yeah. so on. So, yeah. uh, do you think uh, that this this overall that, that is a promising uh, way forward in the sense that Central India can hold the maximum number of tigers, followed by the Western Ghats? Uh, is, is there any kind of uh, you know conservation uh, insight on that? What would you say? no see the five big pieces they identify which are distinct in the sense there is not much movement between them that's okay but what what is uh, what would be very clear when you look at it you can have maximum number of tigers it's simply a function of uh, the type of forest and the area of forest so uh, from that perspective it is true that central india has the largest blocks of forest and their central india is strange in the sense it includes telangana it includes chhattisgarh etc the point is if you look at india as a whole there is a strange mismatch between where the tigers are and uh, where the forests are it is true some parts of central india maharashtra mp uh, there are large blocks of forest and there are substantial tigers but if you look at all the other areas like in the western ghats in the terai and in assam 
the tigers are in some of the most densely populated areas with the most fragmented forests. The most extensive forests in India are in Orissa, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, uh, then again in the northeastern hill states. These are practically devoid of tigers in, 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 relatively, so few tigers. So this is a striking thing and the scope for bringing back tigers is actually where there is still suitable habitat but tiger numbers are not there. But all our massive investments of this entire bureaucracy that I talked about, the huge budgets, budgets have inflated by 30, per, uh, 30 times in some of these reserves. They're all going into the areas where there are already tigers uh, at reasonable density. The investments are not being directed, right? Basically, they're not being directed at the right things to do. They're being not spent on the right things like voluntary relocation, incentive-driven relocation, which will bring quick dividends. How, how serious is fragmentation uh, uh, as a challenge to uh, tiger conservation? Fragmentation is a challenge not just for tigers, for any wide-ranging moving uh, species. Uh, the more the habitat gets uh, fragmentation can happen in two things. One are linear intrusions that cut across. One is uh, what is called honeycombing, little uh, little pieces of cancer that spread around. So both are fragmentation. But fragmentation is happening on multiple fronts. Often people think it's only the industry, highways, big projects that are causing problems. Mines, uh, definitely they are causing problems. But Equally, or if not more, fragmentation is being caused by rural roads, which is the biggest investment going into rural development. Every area they're putting uh, metal rural roads. Biggest uh, pressure is coming from electrification. Biggest pressure is coming from the uh, improper implementation of the FRA, which is leading to patches of uh, forest being colonized afresh after decades. So, Fragmentation is a threat on multiple fronts, one of which is big infrastructure. So broadly, uh, you know, just to conclude, broadly, what would you say uh, should be the uh, priorities of environmental policy with conservation? Do we take the tiger as the apex animal in this case, which will, uh, you know, lead to further, you know, downstream benefits. So what would you say should I, be our uh, environmental approach? Now we have this uh, whole idea of this EIA, which, uh, you know, many see as weakening the, uh, you know, framework. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, conservation uh, you know, from a policy perspective? My perspective is this was an approach uh, advocated by Dr. John Robinson in the 1990s. It was a very thoughtful approach to conservation, which is to recognize Certain species and certain areas, a proportion of the land has to be kept aside for wildlife. Now, these are six protected areas, whatever you call them. Uh, I'm not saying tigers per se. For some species which are incompatible human users, can eliminate them. You need to have six protected areas. Now, that proportion can't be very high in India because we have had a history of human occupation from 60,000 years. We have lost most of our areas. Perhaps we may have, we may be able to hit a figure of 10% for that, not more than that. Right now, our protected areas are less than 5%. So we should aim for 10% under fit protection for nature conservation. The other 90% we have to manage for humans, in which that perhaps another 20 or 30% can be in multiple use landscapes where some biodiversity, 
some form of wildlife that can coexist with people. A lot of birds can, a lot of other things can. Can be managed for agriculture, uh, wildlife, multiple use. Then another 10 or 15 percent, we definitely need for intensive industry, urbanization, uh, energy development and things like that, without which we cannot have the economic growth. And economic growth is fundamentally what people have demanded in successive elections. By ignoring that and saying, let's wind the clock back and we have conservation solutions in the 14th century, I do not agree. But I think it's this uh, approach called sustainable landscape, which is basically managing the land separately for conservation, for multiple use, and for inter intensive development. I think that's the way to go. And if we go that way, there is still room for 10,000 tigers. I would still argue that. What about private uh, tiger, uh, I mean, private, uh, you know, reserves in the sense that you buy land and then you rewild it and, uh, you know, make it available to nature? Does that appeal that as a concept? Is, that is certainly one approach. And it has uh, it has worked in other places, but there, uh, the problems in India are slightly different because unlike in these situations uh, where it has worked best is in uh, some of the Latin American areas, some of the African countries, uh, land is very cheap. And that land is not very useful for many things other than very poor quality uh, raising beef cattle. So there the switch is easier to switch it to wildlife and earn more money from tourism. In India it becomes a little more tricky because here the land is more productive and per acre far more expensive than in most places in the world. So our approach should be at least where there is possibility of developing say places like Nagarhole or Ransambur which are being crushed by tourism. Outside those, if you can incentivize collectives of farmers or corporates in partnership with farmers to manage large areas for purely for wildlife instead of agriculture, which is suffering all these depredation, and as a result, the farmer makes more money, that will lead to an automatic expansion of our uh, uh, wildlife areas, providing them a buffer, rewilding, whatever you call it. It's possible, but it's a little more tricky in terms of the economics. And uh, but I see no reason why it can't be done, given that we have a 300 million strong middle class which is willing to spend. And uh, right now, all that money and all that incentive is going to just trashing the existing four percent area under protected area, uh, of which probably only one percent is under pressure. So we need to expand outwards from these areas where there is a possibility. Thank you so much, Ulas, for sparing the time, giving us some insights. Thank you, Anand. Always good talking to you, Anand.